trophies. I dusted off some trophies, and then I borrowed some trophies from some guys as well. These aren't all mine. Uh, it's funny that I have a basketball trophy because that's actually mine. I'm a horrible basketball player. That was sixth grade, sixth grade basketball. Like we beat up on the other uh, elementary schools, I guess. And I was like this C string. I think they call it A B A. No, third string or whatever you call it. It was me and a bunch of girls, but but I got to participate on the winning team. So, but I look back at these trophies, the ones that are mine, and I think, man, this, some of these things really bring back some memories about moments where I felt like, man, oh, it's amazing. Just amazing. I love that I loved that moment where the coach would give you that trophy and you get to walk up, your name's called, and, I, you know, that recognition, you know you earned it. It gave me a little taste of the glory, you know, as Nacho commented on there. A few years ago, though, I was coaching my son Gabriel's t-ball team, his first year of t-ball. I'm not really into t-ball. Probably because, in my mind, there's no point. After about two to three games, I'm done with t-ball. I'm like, all right. And I see some dads shaking their heads, you know. We want to get rid of the tee and throw the real ball at them and let them swing and hit it, right? Because that's how the game is played. So within a few weeks, I'm ready for the real deal, you know. And uh, because in t-ball, nobody gets out. Nobody, everybody scores. There's no strikeouts. Everybody hits. That's not baseball. I mean, think about if you played baseball, you know, you have to learn to deal with disappointment and all these kinds of things. So when I was coaching, I thought, what better time to start than now to teach these kids about disappointment? And um, so I began to, so I could, I could only handle that approach for so long. And in my t-ball practice, I started to set up these real nail-biter, bottom-of-the-ninth-inning clutch moments. I'd put the kids on third base. The next kid would come up to bat. And I'd say, all right, Bobby, when the ball's hit, you've got to take off once the ball's hit and score before I tag you out. And I put the best player at the pitching mound, because that's pretty much where all the kids hit it in t-ball. Once in a while, they'd hit it away, and the kids would score, and they're the champion. But a lot of times, man, we'd get those kids out just like this, boom, boom, boom. And I'm eating it up. I'm just like all right, let's go. I'm like waiting for them. They're still trotting. I'm like, you know, and I have these moms and dads looking at me like, because it's just not typical. You know, kids would be disappointed. Parents may have disapproved some. There was some crying. I remember a couple of crying. And then I'd have talks with the kids about, you know, next year you're going to be hitting in the real thing. And, and, and I get it. I'm not completely heartless. We did have a few games where I went with the everybody scores, we'll just do this. But it continues on, this idea of everybody wins. We all want to win. At the end of the season, T-ball, everybody gets a little medal. Did they earn it? They tried. You know, they all played hard. and So the, every, the league gives everyone a medal. Well, the parents didn't think that was enough because they wanted the kids to have trophies. And I was just like, I, I got outnumbered. So, you know, we all pitched in by these kids' trophies, and I got to give all the kids trophies. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is goofy. They didn't earn it. You know, they hit the ball. They ran around the base. Now you're looking at me, and you're ready to throw something at me. But, but the kids, you know, they get it, and they light up. It meant something to them. These kids, you know, they get a little taste of, yes, I'm the champion. 
I'm the best. Everybody was the best that season, right? Because everybody wins. But why is that so important to us? To be recognized. To win. To, to get glory. Why is it that I still have a box full of trophies that my wife says, are you seriously going to keep this thing? Like, we got to lug this thing around from move to move. And I'm like, it means something, honey. And start telling her and my kids about and they, you know, it, it's just not that important to them. But I, I'm sure I'm probably not the only glory grabber in the room. Deep down in our hearts, I think all of us have this the side of us where we really believe we deserve the credit. We deserve the trophies. We deserve to be displayed and for our works to be recognized, to get a little bit of praise. And sometimes when credit is not given to us, we take it anyway. We jump up. We make sure everybody knows what we did. We make sure everybody knows how we've built our lives. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to wrap up this message series on providence. This word providence means to see beforehand. It, it's the idea that God has a unique vantage point and he sees beforehand. He sees the end before the beginning. And so he's working on a large scale in, among nations, in history. He's turning events. He's providentially working things out according to his plan. He's working on a, on a large scale. He's also working in the details. We looked at that, how God works even in the smallest details. And where we want to jump to conclusions in life, God is actually working out his plan. And when he does that, as he works, it's very easy for us to, to say, you know what, this amazing thing happened. And then we want, to, we want to lift ourselves up. We want to take credit for what has happened in our lives or around us or Amongst all of our lives, we want to grab a little bit of glory for ourselves so that we get some recognition. I want to look at this idea of how this desire is in us. But the truth of the matter is this, and it's in the top of your listening guide. This is what we're going to look at. Is God will not share His glory with us. He won't. He will not share, his, his, he will not share the credit with us when He works in amazing ways, in the, in the small details, in the large scheme of things. He deserves the glory. And it, it's, it's very natural for us to be like in an interview. When you see the news station broadcast live interviews, they're interviewing on the scene and there's people in the background jumping up. You seen that? And sign, hey mom, did you see him on TV? Holding up their college shirt, look at where I went to school. And person's trying to report on the weather. That's, that's sometimes what happens. There's something big that God does. We're in the background popping up. You know, hey, don't miss the effort I had. Don't miss the contribution I've made. And this is what happens in the story we're going to look at this morning. God does something amazing. And some people start jumping up in the background trying to get a little bit of credit. Let's take a look. At one point in Israel's history, Israel was being harassed by the Midianites. This is found in Judges chapter 6. And in this book, what you see is just the Israelite people repeating a cycle of sin. God had provided in some amazing ways. He delivered them out of captivity. Through Moses, God had delivered them. Part of the Red Sea. Joshua advances them into the promised land. Just before Joshua dies, he tells the people, he said, don't go back. Do not forsake God and go back and worship other gods. He says, decide right now, right here, right now. Choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to go back and repeat the pattern of the past and bail on God? Or are you going to... Are you going to choose to follow him with your whole heart? 
And they make a commitment. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to stay the course. We're going to follow him. What do they do? They go right back into that same cycle. They do what's evil. They break past boundaries that God had said were there. They busted through some boundaries. And they dealt with the consequences. And so this is one of those situations where Israel was being harassed by the Midianites, a foreign group that had would raid them. And so let's look at this story. Verse 1, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. This was their pattern again. They were worshiping idols. They hadn't been learning from the experiences of their past, the fact that consequences would come and it was tied to them forsaking God. And so what God was doing, he was removing his restraining hand and he allowed this foreign army to come and invade at key moments to just clean out the resources of the the Israelites. So verse 2 says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. You know, it's this massive invasion. Like they were being terrorized. These were terrorists that would come in and terrorize the people. They wouldn't just invade and then stay and overtake, conquer. They would come right when it was best to come and invade. Harvest time, they'd come, they'd take the harvest, they'd take the livestock, and they'd clean out the Israelites. It says, it was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So there's seven years of oppression, and finally they recognize, we're not going to make it. So they cry out to God for help. And God, the God who'd made a covenant promise to be with them, to provide, He responds in this way. God raises up Gideon, an unlikely leader. God picks a man that was not the guy we would choose. He's not the guy that had this tremendous background of conquering and delivering. And, you know, as they were being oppressed, you would expect that kind of guy to be raised up by God. But instead, God chooses a man named Gideon. Unlikely guy. Here's what happens. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So Gideon, like most of the other Israelites, they were, they were in hiding. They were not able to, they were not able to do life as normal because they were in hiding. And so Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. He, he's, He's not threshing wheat out in the open. Normally, wheat would be threshed in an open area where the threshing floor would be, the oxen would pull and, you know, grain would fall through the slats. Or they would just, they weren't afraid to do this out in the open. These were agricultural people. But Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a, in a wine press, keeping it hidden. Okay? They still need to survive. But this, this gives us a clue into the fact that he's doing this in a wine press indicating this is a real small size of harvest going on. This invasion year after year was really taking its toll. He was also doing it in this, you know, in this hidden way. Verse 12 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied. And then Gideon starts unleashing a series of questions that he'd been wrestling with. Most of us would identify with these, with these questions. Look at him. 
If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? You know, they know he knows the history. He's heard the stories about ways God has provided. If, if God's really with us, like he said, why is all this happening to us? We ask that same question, don't we? If God's really with me, how can I be going through all this? How could I be dealing with all this pain? So he's asking these questions. Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? He knew about the Red Sea. He knew the the, the he knew about the, the way that God delivered them from Pharaoh with plagues. And he's just like, where's all that stuff? And then the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon seemed to be painfully aware of his shortcomings. He's like, you've got the wrong guy. He was the weakest man from the lowest family of the smallest clan in the least significant tribe. He's saying, this doesn't add up. Why would you want to use me? And there will be times, just like Gideon, where we're going to struggle to reconcile the victories that we read about in the Bible. We read the page of the Scripture, and we see how God comes through. And then we look at the struggles that we're facing in the moment, and we think, is this the same God? Where are the miracles? Where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Because look at my life. I want. We're going to struggle with our own insecurities, our own fears, our own unbelief. And just like Gideon, he's wrestling with all that. But then God responds to Gideon by doing this. God displays his power to reassure Gideon. You see, we're going to skip down to verse 20. The angel, the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. God performs this miracle before him to let to reassure him that he was present he would strengthen him when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord because at this point he'd not made that connection now he makes the connection wow this is this is an angel and he says ah sovereign Lord I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face but the Lord said to him peace do not be afraid you're not going to die and then God reassures Gideon he says I'm the same God who who delivered you out of Egypt. The one who delivered his people from, from Egypt, from Pharaoh, and I'm not dead. He's saying, I haven't forgotten you. I still have the same power to perform miracles. And he did that with that miracle. Gideon then, he tests God. You can read about the test in, in that chapter. He tests God again to see. He's like double checking. Are we sure? Are you sure you want me to go? And he asks him for another sign. God actually performs another miracle to reassure Gideon of, of certain victory. You will be victorious. So then, this is what happened. Gideon, he gathers this huge army, over 30,000 men. And God trims it way back. He gathers this force of people. And he, <clears throat> you know, if, if we're building an army to fight a group that's, in, you know, that's about to come at us, you know, I'm picking, I'm picking the best guys. I'm picking the biggest guys. I'm picking the guys who come from that kind of family that, you know, the dad kind of, I'm picking. And so Gideon, he, he gathers, he gathers this large group, this army, skilled army. He doesn't take them all. Lord said to Gideon, verse 2, you've got too many men 
for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You see, the larger the army, the more they get to take credit for. The more people involved, the more people get to shine. The more people get some credit. So then God's announced to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left. (laughs) So God just trims them way back. They're about to go up against this army of 120,000 Midianites. They had 30,000. The odds were already clearly against them. They were outnumbered. When they had their 30,000 plus men, they were outnumbered four to one. Now God says, anybody who's afraid, you can go home. It's okay. 22,000 of them leave. And now, while 10,000 are made, now they're outnumbered 12 to one. Now imagine yourself going into that fight, 12 to one. Who'd go into a fight four to one? Not me. You know, not unless I've got some secret powers that I can use. But I mean, most guys aren't going to pick that fight. Twelve to one? But then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many. There's still too many men. Take them down to the water. Go down to the water. I'm going to sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water and there... The Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their dogs, with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. So everybody gets a drink of water and he says, 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Kind of ambiguous, but when you try to picture it, he's saying, I'm going to sort them out this way. Whoever kneels all the way down to the ground to get a drink of water, they're, you know, they're drinking from the from the water itself, versus the group that's lapping it up like this. He says, I want you to use those who lap the water up like this, like a dog would lap it. And I, I'm trying to think, do dogs lap it like that? But maybe some dogs lap it like that. But I think the idea, and as people study this and they try to figure out what that was all about, some people think those who lap, their, lap the water up like this, it identified those who were more watchful, like they're... They're paying attention versus the guys who are like this, you know, and they're, they're just focused on the task. And these guys are, they're focused on refreshment and scanning, you know. And so he says, use those guys. Josephus, one historian, said that he believes that the 300 men who passed the test were less watchful. He thinks this is, again, what resulted in greater recognition of God's power. Whatever the case, it's clear that, that God did this. God set up the battle with the odds so heavily favoring the enemy. He set it up in a way that God, it, the, the odds were to- clearly in the favor of the enemy, that the victory could only come through God's hand. He trimmed him back from this massive group, down about 10,000, now down to 300. There's 300 that remained, 400 to 1 odds. Look at jo- uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 16 through 22. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. He separates them into three groups of 100. Surrounds the camp. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, which would have been 10 p.m. Just after they had changed the guard, the night guard, the middle night guard. So the retiring guard 
was now, they were changing guards, so it's likely that the Midianites were moving around. Those who were coming off guard were moving around in the camp. Then it says, they blew their trumpets, they broke their jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. All at once there's this terrible noise and these glowing torches, and it totally throws off the Midianites. Verse 21 says, while each man held his position around the camp, all they just they shouted, they did what he said, all the Midianites ran. They don't know what's going on. They, they hear the sound. They see the glowing torches. They also likely see the people, their own guards, retiring in the camp, walking around. They're thrown into confusion. They cry out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. See, the confusion in the camp was unbelievable, as they must have imagined. This invading army was much larger than they really were. They probably mistook their own men. They were retiring guards as the enemy. And so you know, they're in confusion. They start killing each other, and they, they flee. This, this group is wiped out. Here's what's interesting about this victory. You'd think, you know, everyone's like, oh, my goodness. Everybody that's watching, everybody that didn't battle, everybody that did battle, wow. You'd think they'd be like, I can't believe what God just did. We didn't even have to do anything. We just obeyed our leader, and we didn't have to get dirty. We didn't, I didn't, I don't know, got any battle wounds. God just amazingly defeated this group. But here's the interesting thing about the victory. Instead of celebrating this amazing victory, some of the men of Israel complained. Some of the men complained that they had not been included in the victory. They didn't get the credit. They didn't get to share in the, in the, in the glory of this defeat, this amazing victory. They didn't get part of it. Verse 1 there was a group that was not called to battle, the Ephraimites. These were Israelites that were not in the, in the battle. They asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. In other words, why would you leave us out of the fight? We wanted in on the fight. I'm not sure what their full motive was for complaining, but I suspect that they desired the praise that would going along with being in the battle. I had other plans, though, than to use the Israelites, didn't he? And here's why. Because the glory for this victory belonged to God alone. The glory, the praise, the credit, it belongs to God alone when he works. Whether you have walked with God for a long, long time, you have this journey of walking with him since you were six years old, eight years old, and you, or, or maybe you just recently decided to follow Christ, this struggle to get praise is in us all. This struggle to be recognized and to get partial credit, it's, it's in us. We've got to fight it. We've got to push it down. I think there's three areas that we especially need to give God credit for. Here they are. First, for all that we do to serve Him. Anytime we serve Him, whether it's meeting a need, oftentimes in our church, we're, you know, we want people to get to know each other. We want people to share what's going on, the good, the bad. And when seasons of difficulty come along, we hear about it. And so our church is able to respond to those needs, setting up meals, serving people, helping, financially assisting. There's things that we'll do. And as we have opportunities to serve, or if we come and part of, if you're part of the team that volunteers to set everything up and tear it all down, because this is a barren room when we get here and then when we leave, 
you know, it, it's easy when we when we are given opportunities to serve to get credit and to desire that we get a little bit of we get a little bit of praise, we get some recognition, but we want to give him the credit for all that we do when we serve. Look at this verse. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples about the responsibilities, about their responsibilities. And first he says that they need to have faith. And then he says that when they serve, they shouldn't expect special praise. Look at this verse. My mentor used to quote this verse when people would give him praise for a job well done in, in ministry. Jesus says this to his disciples. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? A servant does not get special praise from his master for doing what he's supposed to do. If I have a servant and he does his job, you know, I don't say, go take five. You know, matter of fact, you know, you don't need to do the rest of your... No, this is what a servant does, what Jesus is saying. A servant does not get special praise for doing what his master has asked him to do. Verse 10, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You see, we're to serve. Anytime we serve, we're to serve with humility. Anytime God allows us to use our gifts, He's wired us with certain gifts, and as we use those gifts, we're to serve with humility. What a challenge, though, to live out. Because this desire is in all of us. When you serve at church, it's easy to elevate your gift, or when you do something for another, it's easy to lift it up and hope somebody calls that out publicly. Service at church or towards others is an opportunity to choose to just to lower ourselves in humility. Write down Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to look at it, but I encourage you to take a look at the attitude that Jesus, he, the verse starts with, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And it lays out how he took the lowest form of servitude. And he, he, he served. He served. Look at, look at that. And it sets into perspective our own service. When people give credit to us, when people say, hey, I saw that. I saw what you did. That was awesome, man. You're the best. And when people start building you up, quickly deflect that praise to God. Thank God for, for what he's doing or what he has done. Praise him for it. And when someone comes and says something to you, just say, praise God. Praise God. I mean, it's an opportunity to deflect the praise away from ourselves. Because we can certainly say, thanks, man. And then we feel a little bit, we walk a little taller, and we feel a little better for the rest of the day. John the Baptist, when, when he started getting praise, he said this. He pointed people towards Jesus. He said, he must become greater, I must become less. He's like, I'm going to drift into the background and let him shine. I want him to get the credit that's due. And I think we have to wrestle with this area of service. In our church, we, we service is, you know, servants are, you know, they're great. To service is, is to be a real leader, isn't it? According to Scripture, Jesus said, this is the way to leadership. You serve. You lay down your life. But as you serve, we have to be careful. We don't do it for praise. We don't do it to get the glory, to share the limelight. 
Another area that we need to give him credit for is for all that we have, for every, for the possessions we have, for our resources, for our success. Many of you have been extremely successful in life. Many of you have arrived at the place in your career that you always wished you'd be at. Many of you, you know, you have resources and, you know, we, we have our wealth and all of that. And it's very easy to just take credit. Yeah, I worked hard for all this. Yeah. This is why I spent all my time so that I could have this, these things. We begin to take that after the Israelites in the Old Testament are done wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, he reminds the people when they were about to enter the promised land, he's, you're going to be prosperous in this land. As they're about to enjoy prosperity and, and just success, wealth, provision, all of that, Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 through 18, Moses reminds them, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. He's saying, look, all of life is a gift from God. Nothing we have comes apart from him. All of our possessions, our success in our career, our wealth, all of that comes from God. Do not forget who provided it for you. Don't take for cre- the credit for yourself. Do not forget and acknowledge God hand, God's hand of provision. I remember when I got my first real job that paid real money. And it was really hard. It was easy for me to just give God a little tip. But most of the time, I made sure that I had what I needed. And We tend to think, God, I'm working so hard. Do you know how hard I worked for this paycheck? Do you know how hard this week was? Do you know how much education I put in to arrive to the, to the point in my career that I'm at? Do you know how much I've had to sacrifice, God, to get where I am today? And that's kind of a crazy thought when we consider what he sacrificed for us. But we begin to think that way as we withhold all that we have from him and we take credit for it in our attitude, in the way that we withhold what is rightfully his. We start building our life withholding and what that does is it creates problems for us for really sustaining that level of success that level of wealth because if we withhold that's a form of taking credit for what is rightfully his look at this verse god speaks to his people through a prophet in the old testament the temple had been in shambles god had instructed them to focus on rebuilding the temple The prophet Haggai, he says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. God's people were too busy focusing and building their own lives. They had no time yet to rebuild the temple. They had no time to focus on God's priorities. They were too consumed with their own. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Is this strategy really working for you? He says, take a good look at your lives. While you're so focused on building your own house and ignoring God and his priorities and and resourcing his temple and rebuilding his temple, give careful thought. Is that strategy really working? Look at verse 6. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He's like, you're so focused on doing your protecting and providing yourself and your riches and resources in your family that you don't realize that this ain't getting you anywhere. It's like there's a leak in your bank account. It's like you're walking around with a purse. You're depositing money in it, and there's really a hole in it. And you're walking around, and it's falling out. He says, you, you don't have a whole lot going for you. Later on, he talks about get on track. But we don't always see it that way. We, we don't always recognize that when we ignore God's commands with our, as it relates to our resources, we're actually taking credit. We're taking credit for it, for what we have. God tells that group, he says, get your priorities straightened out, and he'll plug the holes that are in your life. He's saying, get these things straightened out. Within a few months of being married, my wife asked me if we were being faithful to give to God. And I initially thought, eh, I'd say so. Then she got a little more specific, and I thought, all right, no, we're not. I'm not. I was doing the finances, and she wasn't doing them. And so this was... And I initially thought, doesn't she know how hard we both are working? We're barely surviving. We're barely have enough to cover everything. And now I'm supposed to go and give to God? How, how's that going to work? Here I am, just out of college, in a degree in religion, preparing to be a pastor, to teach people things like stewardship. I was entering in seminary. I, I was just beginning seminary. I had a long seminary time. And... I was starting it out, and I was preparing for teaching on biblical stewardship. And here I was disobeying in my own personal stewardship. And the Lord quickly convicted me of that, and I got back on track. I got on track. I shouldn't say back on track, because it, it was not a practice I had had a track record in. I was used to withholding, making sure I was covered and having what I needed, and I tipped God you know, if you get served well in a restaurant, we give the waiter a tip. If we if we have a good week, we give God a tip. Thanks, God. But we withhold and we make sure we're covered. I knew better, and I needed to get my priorities in order. That's that's this whole area of taking credit is dangerous because the holes we can't plug those holes on our own if we're not obedient to God in that area of giving Him the credit. Look at this last area. For all his work in our lives. Give him the credit for all his current work, his past work in your lives. Anytime we talk about our testimony, that story of what God has done in you, what he's doing through you, who plays the starring role in your story? Who's the star? Who's the co-star? You know, start talking about all that God has brought us out of. You know, I was into this and I was into that. And I, you know, I had these thoughts, and then Jesus saved me. And now, man, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I've got this. And, and we, we, we star, if we're starring in that role, again, we're taking credit where it's not due. Paul, a first century church starter who had quite the resume, both before becoming a Christian, yielding his life to Christ, and then made quite the mark on the formation of the Christian church. You know, he's a guy that, you know, if he were here, I'd be like, here you go, Paul. You, you deserve some credit for this. He's, he's a guy, he shines in the Scriptures. You read, you know, he's one of those guys that God used tremendously 
But look at what he says, speaking about the past, the religious things he did for God. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in his flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. He's like, I've kept the law. Been spotless. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul laid his trophies aside, and he's basically saying, I've dumped those in the trash so that I may embrace Christ. He's like, that's rubbish. That's trash. My past, the, the things that, you know, that I did, it's, he's embracing Christ fully. If God has brought some specific things to your mind through this story of Gideon or just any of these areas where we tend to take credit, what I would encourage you to do is jot those things down in your listening guide. Write them out. Spend some time praying through that. Cody's going to come up here and maybe start with just confession. As God brings things to your mind, that there's some trophies that we are really proud of, that, that you'd write those things out. You know what? I've taken credit for, for these things. I regularly do. And I think we, if we're honest, I think God brings things to our mind in this area. Then begin the practice of praising Him, thanking Him for what He's done through you, for all that He's given you, for all that He's working in you right now. There's a song. It's, it says, it's a song I remember singing growing up in church. It was, without Him I could do nothing. Without Him I'd surely fail. Without Him I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. The author, the writer of that song, he actually drifted off. He, he spent some years walking away from God. The heart of the song, though, is we can't do anything apart from Christ. We're on our own, pretty weak, and we need, his, we need Him. All that we have is passed through His hand. He's poured good into our life. He's allowed, some, he's allowed us to experience some bad things. He can work those things out still. We looked at that. If you've, this is your first Sunday or you weren't here for part of the series, I encourage you to check out some of the messages over the last month. They're on our website. And be encouraged as you see God involved in detail. God providing. He's for you. He's for us. Take a look at these next steps on the back of your connection card. These are on the back of that white card you received when you came in. It says, my next step today is invite family and friends to the Enough Message series. Just encourage you to to personally do that. It'd be great if, if we just had people who've not yet been in church aren't a part of a local church. And so I'd encourage you to not try to encourage people who are already churched in other places, um, but people who may not know about our church, may not be Christians. Um, this is the topic that everybody, I think, identifies with. And everybody is struggling currently in our society, in this economy. The next step you might take is get specific and confess to God an area that I've taken credit. Just some time alone. We're actually going to have 
some time to do that in just a moment. And then last, thank God in advance for a major area that I'm trusting him to work. What I'd encourage you to do is take out this little thank you card that you see. It's blank. It's in your bulletin. It's just it's a thank you card. And what I want to encourage you to do is thank him for an area that you're trusting him to provide in. Thank him in advance. There's something broken. There's something that needs to be restored. There's something you need to be freed from. There's, there's an area that's just not right, and you're struggling through it. Take a moment to think through and write out a prayer or write a word that communicates thankfulness. And then put it somewhere so that if God chooses to work in that area, that you can not do this, but be reminded to just take a look at, wow, I already thanked him for that. Wow. And it's continue to, to praise him for the work that he does. Give him the glory. We're going to sing a song right now, and uh, Cody's going to lead us, and he's going to invite us to join him in the song in a bit. But as he sings, would you just bow your heads right now, and we're just going to have a time of prayer, asking God to just bring things to our mind in the area of taking credit. And just say, God, what have I taken credit for that is not mine? What have I taken credit for that is rightfully yours? And I want to confess that to you right now. Just me and you, God. And let him speak to you. And then just in your heart, just say, God, thank you for working in that area. Thank you for the way you provided. And just spend a moment as Cody sings, just praising him in your heart. And he's going to invite us to join him in just a moment.